Привет. That's another way to say hello in Russian. There's actually five ways to say hello in Russian, or so I've been so I've been told. Really? Is one of them riding down an escalator? <laughs> six ways. Six ways to say Privet uh, is the, the uh, much less formal way to say it. Like, so you're my friend, right? I yeah. know you and you know me, and so Privet is a nice way to say. So hello. we still owe our listeners that mailbag episode. We do. Yeah. And um and Joe, you're you're the reason we don't have that out yet. Right? Ow. That's now, what you call a lie, folks. <laughs> that is a bald-faced lie. It's lying is all the rage these days. It's in. Lying is in. Uh, no. it, it was, I, I've been feeling a little beaten down. And mm. so uh, we were going to record, and I said, Joe, I just can't, I, I, I just can't do it. I, I need some time. So, so we, we didn't do it uh, this weekend like we had thought we might, but we will do it. It is coming. So there's still time. Oralargumentpodcast at gmail.com. We've gotten lots of great tweets you see the first Monday's crew put up uh, the crossover episode we did in their feed? Yeah, that was great. Yeah, that was – some of the feedback came in after that. And I kind of listened to it again for a little while without really realizing what – because I just turned it on because I listened to first Monday's. Yeah. So – and then I was like, oh, this was kind of fun. So I listened to a bit of it again. Yeah, everybody should uh, subscribe to that crew. Absolutely. That episode we just did with Leo Littman, that was awesome. That was awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And there's there's really not a reason. Like if you're not subscribing to that podcast, you're nuts, I think, right? Just nuts. Okay, fair enough. And, and, and then, uh, um, but you were apologizing. The, the National your... Security Law Podcast with Steve oh, and Bobby is amazing. They just had a great episode about the authorization for the use of military force. Yeah, that was very informative. Yeah, I mean, as so, all their episodes are. I mean, we're a niche podcast, but these these other two these are mainstream. <laughs> you know what I mean, Joe? I don't know what you mean. Well, actually, I'm happy being a niche. Okay. Anyway, an itch or a niche? Uh I see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, so I was about, so it's my fault that we didn't get that out, but we will be recording that. And as a little little enticement, because I, I thought our conversation here with who's our guest, Joe? Jeff Kaplan of at UC Berkeley. Yeah. Um, philosophy graduate student, right? Indeed. And author uh, of a wonderful paper, which is how you found him. And we always want to have all kinds of different folks on the podcast. We've been looking for a way to start talking about the sort of thing that we're going to be talking about with him. Yep. And you thought this paper was a really good way to do it. And I agree. And he was delightful. And we even had a little bonus conversation at the end, which we thought, well, maybe we'll put that, in, but maybe it'll make the episode too long. So we're going to put that, we're going to include that in our mailbag episode. Nice. As like a little bonus track. Yes. I might even, maybe I should insert like 30 seconds of silence at the end of our conversation. You know how they do that with bonus tracks? Oh, like, sure, sure. Yeah. And, and you don't know it's going to be there. And then all of a sudden there's the conversation. Hmm. Yeah, a bonus okay. track. So, so that'll be uh, that'll be maybe next week. Yeah, we shouldn't make any promises, should we? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I, I even had someone uh, 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 tweet at me. Uh, tweet you? That, yeah, a listener tweeted at me, sent, you know, asking like for recommendations on podcasts because I recommended the Weeds oh, one yeah, episode yeah. of the Weeds, it's another great one, yeah, and uh, which is a great podcast, and the, like what. Tell me some other podcasts to listen to. So we'll talk about that in the mailbag. Okay. I, I, I still have to think about that. I keep changing my mind about that. About what? It's like my mental model of the right podcast to listen to keeps mm. changing. Okay. Hmm. You know, there's like, uh, boy, the podcasts you listen to are, are a kind of real reflection of self in a way, aren't they, Joe? Ooh. So I should not read my list. <laughs> That's very revealing. That's what you're saying. Like if you tell someone your list of podcasts, you're revealing a lot about yourself. It is revelatory. Okay. But I don't know how we could get much rev- more revelatory than we are in the nonsense that we 
pretty routinely. Doing. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I agree. Are, are you saying that there's something in your podcast uh, feed uh, catcher that that would say more than you let on in the show? I don't think so, but I've, I don't know that I've looked at the list recently with that in mind. So I, I need to I need to do a scrub. Look are you saying that, there's embarrassing stuff in there? Is that, I don't know. That's my point. <laughs> I haven't looked at it lately. I don't know whether there is or not. You, you know, one thing we should say on this same topic before we get to our guest today, um, because it's, I think, six or seven episodes in now, I got to look, is some, it, it, speaking of that crossover episode that we did with the First Mondays crew, um, one of the things that came up in there is this idea that we had for a podcast, which we never, you know, we've had lots of ideas for podcasts. Let's just say, let's just say in general, we've had lots of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and yes but but one of the you know we had the uh, of course the uh, hold up show right I, I would love to do that there's no time joe there's no, no time to do all these things we did no. one episode of that right it was great it was great fun but we years keep, ago we did can't keep doing it yeah. i just I, I don't have time but but another episode another series that i thought would be great was summary judgment where an opinion from the supreme court comes down right or maybe it's just argued i don't know could be either way uh but maybe an opinion comes down and you give it five or six minutes to say, you know, here's what the fight's about. Here's what's going on in each side. And, you know, law's not that hard. Any intelligent person can figure this out. But you need a few minutes to kind of figure out what's really going on. Yeah. And then you'll know what to think about it. Or you'll at least and the, and know how to And the version of this show now exists. This show now exists. A, a listener took us up on that and has, uh, has started the show. I don't have the feed in front of me, so I forget his name. Mm. I'm going to have to have to edit that back in. Now, I'll, I'll just include a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. But uh, he's he's taken it, he's run with it, and it's awesome. You guys should subscribe. It's all good. What else you got for us, Joe? Um, I think we should just get on with our conversation with Jeff. You don't have any any personal updates? No. Nope. No. Um, nope. Knitting with Joe? Nope. No, nope. no additional segments nope. to the show? Nope. Remember when we used to get on and we would just kind of just freewheel it a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do that next time. Are we? Yeah. I kind of want to do that right now. Kind of, it's too I, bad. Feel, I feel after talking with with Jeff, like I feel limbered up, I'm mm, like ready to go. Finally, ready to have a chat. Yeah, I mean, we used to talk about like we used to diss word processors on this show. Oh, those <laughs> we, are the days. We used to do takedowns of the U.S. News and World Reports rankings. I know those are those were good times. Those were good times. We were just kind of, you know, I, I would call you up when you were when you were at conferences and, mm. and harangue you. We could do some on the road episodes again soon. We should do that soon, shouldn't we? Yeah. And and I just ask you what you thought about speed trap law, and then make fun of you. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff doesn't know uh, our guest didn't didn't quite realize how excellent his examples were. Oh, yeah, they really fit in with what we do so he, well. He also didn't know that we were recording at the beginning. Yeah, I think we yeah we took him a little bit unawares. But we, that's we, we jump in. Well, yeah, we just we don't we don't mess around. So uh, and and despite all available evidence. We don't mess around. And like all of our discussants, uh, because he's awesome and excellent and smart and funny, uh, yeah, he figured it out and, and we had a great conversation. Hello. Jeff. Christian, how are you? Yeah, this is Christian. Boy, that was, that was shot in the dark, right? Uh, guessing that it was you instead of Joe. He had a 50-50 shot. I mean... Uh, yeah, well, the name that came up um, on Skype was Christian, so True. I went for it. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, this is this is so great. I feel this is Joe. Obviously, I feel um, yeah. Obviously, I feel like 
Uh, well, first of all, I want to share with you guys Zdrasvoytyo, um, which is uh, the formal version of hello in Russian. I've been practicing my Russian. I think that's going to come <laughs> wow. in handy. Um, ah, that's uh, because there's, there are literally reams of compromat on you, aren't there, Joe? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and, you know, and our, our, uh, our Russian overlords will be arriving uh, on our shores soon, no doubt. Um, but, but the other thing is um, I just want to sit and listen to you guys – talk and because the likelihood I'm going to add something of value here about this set of stuff in the presence of oh my YouTube God. is like basically this is, zero. This is how you're going to start? <laughs> well, everyone knows. Yeah, just lowering the bar as low as possible. Well, so for myself, yeah. yeah. We should start every show <laughs> like oh, lowering the, yeah. the listener's expectations. Absolutely. Like We should have called this show like Two Idiots Talking About Law. <laughs> it would have been a much better show title. You're right. <laughs> That's, I guess so. Maybe you know, there's not. There's still time. It, while while we're lowering expectations, I just want to warn that um, a few days ago, maybe four or five days ago, I had a chance to read the first twenty or so pages of Christian's paper, mm. Uh, mm. Models of Law, and then I was planning on reading the whole thing through yesterday, but things came up and I wasn't <laughs> able. So if I were to be quizzed on it, I would <laughs> fail the quiz. <laughs> Well, you you are not you are certainly not people. the not the only person who has read a snippet of that paper. Hmm. Uh, it you is know, a it, long paper. It's it, yeah. I mean, is there a better yeah, in philosophy that would be considered quite long, right? Well, you I think you would you would write a book in philosophy, right? You would either make it yes. ten yeah, or twenty or pages, or you would write a book. Papers. You wouldn't yeah. do this in between thing, right? right. But and, and the truth is, like when I wrote this, I didn't. I set out to create a. Not exactly a summary, but something which was would be accessible within the legal literature mm-hmm. to more people yeah. that wouldn't be a book. Yeah. And yeah. and I didn't, you know, maybe I should have spent more time trying to make it shorter. I did actually spend some time making it quite a bit shorter. But yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it is uncomfortably, you know, in, in my own head. Now, in the legal literature, this is perfectly in line. Like everything is like yeah. 70 pages, whatever. And, yeah. and, and, and a lot of people read a little bit of it, not the whole thing. That's the way – that yeah. seems to be the way it goes in legal scholarship. But um, – but boy, yeah, I'm kind of caught in between two worlds with that paper, like just substantively, I think. Um, yeah, well, I enjoyed the, the first 20 pages that I, uh, that I read. I, I mean, and, and this might do some violence to it, but I sort of can fit your view. I think I can fit your view into a certain category of views. I can classify it within the way that I think about things. But that's probably not the most interesting thing for us to talk about, certainly not on the podcast. <laughs> no, I mean, we're, we're mainly going to talk about about your work and about kind of your perspective on these kinds of questions, your perspective on law as as a philosophy student, uh, a yeah. philosopher. And, 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 and maybe we could also explore like why if you have a view, like why should legal practitioners, for example, be interested in these mm. questions other than just because they're curious, intelligent beings who should be curious yeah. about what they do. But like, yeah. you know, what, what, what is the, what is the payoff? I get asked that question a lot, you know, with the yeah. kinds of things that I write. And, I'm, and, and as you saw, like the first, well, the first 20s pages of that, that article are really kind of that argument about like, hey, these kinds of questions arise naturally in law. Yes. You, know, you look at what, yeah. Mitch, what Mitch McConnell did in the Senate and you ask yourself, is that legal? Is it not legal? Is it, right. is it against norms? Is it with, you know, uh, consistent with legal norms? And anyway, uh, all these yeah. things do arise naturally and, and they raise these ultimate questions, I think. How did you get drawn to this, Jeff, this area? Because you don't uh, – do I read your, your, your sort of website stuff correctly that you, you yourself don't have formal legal training? No, right? I have no, I don't have a law degree. Um, I mean, I have a long-standing interest in 
I guess, criminal justice. I've been teaching at San Quentin State Prison for five or six years now, but I have no legal training. Um, I'm primarily, this is autobiographical and not interesting at all to anyone other than myself, but um, I was primarily interested in the nature of language. Language, you might think, is a set of rules or a set of norms. It's a set of uh, prescriptions for how to correctively, correctly use linguistic expressions, right? You use the word green only for green things, not for red things or purple things or whatever. Um, and so there's lots of questions that philosophers have asked about that. And it sort of occurred to me that those same questions had been discussed in philosophy of law for, say, 200 years before philosophers of language caught on to them. And I kept, it's funny that you say that because I, I, I feel like there was a, there was a portion of my reading your paper where I felt like within the next page or two, I was going to start to see some discussion of philosophical investigations, mm. um, the, yeah. the latter Wittgenstein. And yeah. although it didn't happen, I, I sort of felt like, well, surely, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's going to happen soon, right? Um, yeah. Well, and so <laughs> maybe at some other point you'll, um, they'll, they'll, or I'm sure there's something else you've written where you do do that. Um, but yeah. it, it seems like the, the, the sort of, the the normativity of the games uh, and mm -hmm. the language that he's looking at is like the sort of normativity that you're characterizing right, so law as having. Let, so let's let's make sure from the very beginning because that word normativity is obviously central to this paper. Yeah, and is one of these, you know, one of these seemingly big words. Uh, I went through law school hearing the word normative a bunch without really knowing what it meant. Uh, <laughs> almost the entire time I was in law school, kind of embarrassing, really. Uh, yeah. So I, let's get out on the table. From the beginning, what do we mean by normativity? What kind of question are we asking, and and what kind of what kind of question do you hope to answer with this uh, with this paper, Jeff? Yeah, that's great. That starts us right at the beginning. So, consider traffic laws. We do. We do. you've yeah. hit on. I mean, I, I'm interrupting you right at the beginning. That's kind yeah. of what we do on this show. We uh, have these. Yeah. Uh, we have many discussions about speed traps. <laughs> So this you're, might you're be, right in our alley here. This yeah, may good. be the whole reason we started the podcast is to talk about speed traps, stoplights. Yeah. I think know. the whole reason we started it was to have this conversation with Jeff. I oh, think boy. everything yeah. in the world history has been leading us to this point. All right. Well, let's let. Well, here it is. On, okay. on, Je on our last episode, <laughs> let's let Jeff actually. Right. Yeah. So let's let's take uh, let's take traffic laws that have to do with how fast you can go. Um, they are not those traffic laws are not descriptions. They don't describe how quickly people drive. That's just not what they do. What they do is they prescribe how quickly they ought to drive. They say how quickly they may drive, and therefore they're not the, traffic laws aren't the kinds of things that can be uh, accurate or inaccurate the way a description can. A description can get things right because it's trying to describe things, uh, but a traffic law can't. In the very most minimal sense, that's what we mean, or we might mean, by normative. They say how things ought to be, or how they may be, uh, not how they are. So there's this phrase you use in the paper, um, in the latter half of the paper, about um, world mind fit and, and mind mm -hmm. world fit. Is this getting yeah. at this, a similar sort of distinction? If you're describing, you're trying to make sure that your mind matches the world. Yes. Whereas if you're prescribing, you're trying to get the world to match your mind. That's exactly, that's exactly right. So that's exactly what I was trying to get on with. There's a very famous example that makes this even clearer. Uh, if you, so jump from traffic laws now to grocery shopping. Uh, 
Consider the difference between a shopping list and a receipt, right? A shopping list, these two things might just be lists that have the exact same text on them. They'll say bacon and they'll say cauliflower and, you know, I don't know, salt, right? They may have the exact same text on them. The shopping list, though, is trying, is, is an order. It's a command. It's telling you what to put in the cart, right? And what to leave the store with. The, the receipt is not telling you what to do. It's describing what you've done. It's describing what you've bought, right? So if you, if you get home and you look at the receipt and it turns out that the receipt includes an item, the receipt gets it wrong. The receipt includes an item that you didn't buy, right? Then you, at least you and the manager of the store, you can just change the list. You just cross it right out and problem solved. You change the receipt. You print a new receipt. But you can't do that with a shopping list, right? If you get home and the things that you brought home don't match the shopping list, you can't just go and say, oh, well, let's just change the shopping list. Problem solved, right? The reason for that difference is that the shopping list has what you might call world to mind direction of fit. That is, we're trying to change the world, the, what's in the shopping cart or what's in, what's in the trunk of your car. Uh, we're trying to change the world so that it fits um, the thing that's written or what's in your mind, right? Mind, we could also read as, you know, words, right? Whereas the receipt has the other direction of fit. We're trying to change the mind or the words to fit the world. Okay, so so far, I mean, so this is a description of, of what would make a communication conceived broadly normative mm-hmm. rather than descriptive mm-hmm. or prescriptive mm-hmm. rather you, normative and prescriptive at least in this sense are synonymous i think right and yes. but i'm comfortable with that yeah and, and there's um and so we could go beyond that and ask what what makes things normative more generally rather than just communications but i think the direction the paper takes is another one there's another sense of normative going on here right like what what yeah. gives law its normativity in other yeah. words, if law as a social practice, whatever, yeah. however we describe it, like, you know, the, the, among all the human behaviors out there, let's suppose we can, we can kind of put a, uh, we, we can put some fences around this set of behaviors that we'll just call law. And we'll say that these law behaviors, which result in communications, that, that you know, something about that prax, practice includes normativity. And, mm-hmm. and uh, what, what do we mean by that sense of norm? Is it the same? Is it uh, parasitic? Yeah, what do, what do you mean? Yeah, very frequently people mean something much more when they say that law is normative, or even when they don't say that, but when they just think about law, they think that it's, uh, they think that it's not just a bunch of commands. It's not just a shopping list, right? They think that there's a sense in which morally you ought to do these things. Right? That's a very common sense. And that's, just, that's a lot more than just someone says you should do it in the way that the shopping list says what you should buy. Right? It's very natural to think that, no, you really have to follow legal rules just in the sense that you really have to you know, not torture kittens or whatever other things you think morally you shouldn't do. And, and the, it, even if we don't use the term morality to get started, uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's a sense that going along with the concept of law, or you know, maybe inseparable from the concept of law, and maybe I'm using you know, forget the word concept if that's bothersome. <laughs> Every one of these terms is loaded, right? Philosophically yeah. loaded, but um, going along with the idea of law uh, is the sense that the fact that something is law provides itself a reason to act consistently with that communication that is law. 
right? In other words, that it itself provides yeah. reasons rather than just, uh, you know, being epiphenomenal in the sense that, well, you know, uh, morality itself provides all the reasons that we need to do things. And there's this other thing called law. We make a law for the same reasons that we have these moral intuitions. And so, yeah, of course, you're mm-hmm. not going to speed because speeding is immoral, but also the law, you know, th- no, rather, if the law says 55 miles per hour is the speed limit here, a reason for not speeding is because that's what the law says. Yeah. And so there's yeah. some connection there that you explore in the, in the paper. Yeah. Uh, the way I would put that, right, good. So it's not just that the law, so yeah, there's a lot of things going on here. So let's clear some right, things up. Right. One is you might think that there are moral facts out there, right? Maybe for, if you're religious, then you think that, uh, that the moral law was laid down by God, but, you, but plenty of non-religious people think that there are, there are moral facts that are just out there, right? One thing you might be doing is you might just be trying to describe those. That's what moral philosophers often are trying to do. They're just trying to figure out what the moral rules are, what the moral facts are. But as you point out, law doesn't seem to be quite doing that. It's not just a description of what you otherwise have to do. No, no. The fact that we write it down in the law books, right, um, that makes it the case that you're not supposed to drive over 65, but it could have been 55 or it could have been 75 uh, or something else altogether, right? So the trick is to say how it can be that these descriptive facts about what legislators do can change the facts about what people really and truly ought to do, or at least that's one of the questions in the neighborhood. Um, And I spend a lot of the paper considering a type of view, I call it a triggering view, on, it's not my view, but it's, a, but it's a view that I have to deal with. It's the view that what's going on in this, in this case is that there's these underlying moral facts. And then the, the descriptive facts about what legislatures do trigger or harness those underlying moral facts. So for example, let me give an example. Um, I once saw a person, this is a real example, put garbage, put the, a wrapper, a food wrapper in a, a blue U.S. Postal Service mailbox, hmm. right? I once saw someone do that. They huh. wanted to get rid of this wrapper. They didn't, they looked around. I mean, I didn't see them look around, but they didn't <laughs> see a garbage can and they just decided I'm going to get rid of this. Okay. I think we can agree that that's not something that you should do. You shouldn't put garbage in a blue U.S. Postal Service mailbox. And so we could call that a rule right? We could say that there's a rule out there. Don't put garbage in mailboxes. But this rule is really just a moral rule. It's that there's some underlying moral fact that's out there independent of what anyone thinks about it. And it's something like, maybe the moral fact is something like, uh, don't do anything that unnecessarily inconveniences someone else, right? It inconveniences the the mail carrier to have to take your garbage out of the of the mail. This is an account for why, even if we did research after the fact and found out, yeah, there was no law violated uh, when that person did that. I suspect there is such a law, but suppose there's not oh, one. Totally, there's such a law. Yeah, yeah. But supposing if there's not one, you're giving an account for why, nonetheless, we would all say, "Hey, you're a jerk for doing that." <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's that's part of it. But more, what I'm trying to give an example of is how some descriptive facts, some ordinary facts, the kinds of facts about what legislatures do or the kinds of facts about how people behave, right? What people expect to find in a mailbox, how those kinds of facts can harness, as it were, an underlying moral fact, right? So in this mailbox case, what's going on is that these ordinary facts about 
what people expect to find where. Those ordinary facts make it such that you have a moral obligation that you wouldn't have otherwise had, which is a moral obligation not to place garbage in that location. Because it's a species of the more generic notion of not inconveniencing someone else uh, unnecessarily. Precisely. So this is one type of story that explains how law gets normative force. The answer is, well, there are these underlying moral principles, say, or normative principles that are just out there. And then the, the sort of mundane descriptive facts about what some, what some legislator says at one point or what's written on some piece of paper somewhere, um, how those facts can make it the case that you have moral obligations. And the answer is, well, they trigger, as it were, or harness these underlying moral principles just in the way that you know, our practice of using mailboxes triggers or harnesses an underlying moral principle about, you know, that says you shouldn't unnecessarily inconvenience others. So if a person were concerned about, um, let's say that instead of encountering the person throwing garbage in the mailbox, um, yeah. the person came across uh, the, the rule book uh, for, from the postal service that says, mm-hmm. do not put garbage in the mailbox. Yeah. And they're thinking, well, this is foolish because law should be about things that are important. Um, and that includes, you know, things that are morally important. So I'm worried because it seems like suddenly laws are starting to get very unconnected to morality. A person, some other person like you just did, could come along and say, look, I can demonstrate to you why uh, an important moral precept underwrites Mm -hmm. this thing, which on the surface looks kind of trivial and foolish, but in fact, um, it participates in the underlying moral fabric that you care about and that I care about. And here, so I'm just going to tell you the connection. So you lay in three or four steps, however many it takes, uh, as you just did. Uh, and you can show, you can sort of justify on moral grounds things that, again, on the surface look a bit trivial and maybe even goofy yep. um, to say, well, law has some moral content. Um, you could say, well, it doesn't look like it, but look a little harder, right? Because yeah. because it does. So this is one to take up that take us back to the earlier conversation, this is one way you could say um, uh, one story you could tell about law's normativity. Its normativity com- is comprised of the ability to do this kind of moral underwriting that you just mm-hmm. engaged in, right? Mm-hmm. That you could say for any bit of the law, I can through a series of steps show you the way that some deeper moral principle is implicated and explains this surface level. Legal rule. Now, this is important because if this were your view, or you had a similar view, like that there are some laws are directly are, are just instantiations of moral principles, and other laws are basically coordinative, right? They coordinate people, but coordination itself is moral because we have to do it. So mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. basically gets to the same point, right? If if that's your view of law, then it has kind of in, could have interpretive payoff. In other words, when you're trying to figure out what law's content is. You might be led to engage in trying to recover the moral principles that you think the law is instantiating. And this might lead you down the path of, say, Ronald Dworkin, right, of trying to kind of look at the the laws that have been – look at the writings that are there, look at the decisions about those writings in the past and kind of recover from them certain kinds of principles, which may compete, right, just as moral intuitions – our moral intuitions compete with one another all the time. Sure. Uh, and so you'll have to do some weighing and some other Herculean tasks, right? Of, Indeed. Of, so, but, but if you don't think this, you might think, well, that, you know, that's all wrong. You're not trying to recover any moral principles because there just aren't any there, right? Or, yeah. or if they are there, they aren't necessary to understanding the law. 
But uh, anyway, I, I, I just wanted to kind of connect the conversation we were just having with the with right. the payoff for like a pragmatic lawyer. Like, why do I care about this? Well, because yeah. whether you agree with Scalia or Dworkin or, or or Justice New Justice Gorsuch or with Justice Kagan may depend on you know your view about whether law is just an instantiation of morality or if it is something else. That's right. So let's do let, let's do what what I think. Um, Anyone who's done any reading in this area would would quickly come to at least as as one potential uh, thing to explore, uh, given what we were just talking about in this this triggering uh, concept as you've described it, um, is well okay. What what if I point to a system of rules that that seems to be something people want to call law, um, but but I I'm pretty sure it will be very hard to get it to connect through a series of steps of reasoning to some you know moral mm-hmm. underwriting some mm-hmm. moral foundation so so the heart the heart fuller debate example would be nazism right uh, yeah. and the the law of the third reich uh, and w- w- what that would require you to do to jewish persons etc cetera, etc cetera, right so yeah. say well you know is that law or not uh, i can connect it to a series of moral principles you might claim, uh, but but another person might respond, not anything I'm prepared to call moral principles. So you immediately yeah. get in a situation where on the one hand, you might say, well, it seems like it's law from one point of view. But on another perspective, you say, oh, boy, if that's law, I don't want anything to do with law. Uh, yeah. uh, law to me is something different. So how do you how would you in the way that you've engaged in this project uh, start to sort of unpack that problem? Is it law or not the distance between law and morality? Just to put my cards on the table, I do not accept this triggering view or the view on which all legal rules have moral force mm-hmm. and they get that moral force by triggering or harnessing or siphoning off uh, mind-independent morality. So I do not hold that view. I am very, very positivist. Positivist is, is the term in philosophy of law or legal theory that means that you think that there is... Uh, a very significant separation between law and morality. And so you'd answer the the sort of question that you were just raising about Nazi law, which is a very famous example. You would answer that question by saying, no, Nazi law is is law. Uh, It's just that morality has nothing to do with it. There is no moral test for legal status. You know, that's a problem. Nazi law is is a traditional problem for, well, folks like Fuller and Dworkin, uh, who think that any law is going to have some moral force. Or or I take it people like Stephen Perry, although maybe I misunderstand yep. this, right? So he says, you have this quotation of his in the paper, you know, legal normativity is moral normativity, isn't that? Yeah, that's what he says. Yeah, that's his view. I mean, that's the view that I'm fighting against. Right. So what what is the, how do you begin to decompose that assertion um, because I think that assertion, especially for for my my perception of law students yeah. and my perception of people who have a uh, an everyday understanding of law, but but maybe haven't reflected on these uh, questions that we've been talking about, um, that feels intuitively very appealing, right? The assertion mm. legal normativity yeah. is moral normativity; it's the same, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the first thing to say in response to that sort of view is that it can be the case that some laws have moral force some of the time, right? But that doesn't mean that it is an essential feature of law in and of itself, that it must, as it were, always 
have moral force. So, uh, you know, if you consider another uh, normative practice, another practice made up of rules, like a game, it might be that sometimes, in some cases, the rules of the game have moral force. Say that you promised to follow the rules of the game and that the stakes are high and that if you break the rules, something very significantly bad will happen. Well, then you might think in that case, you have moral reason to follow the rules of that game, right? But that doesn't mean that in order to be a rule of a game in the first place, any rule of a game must have moral force. And I think once you see that, once you see that you can say the same thing about law, then the view that uh, legal normativity is moral normativity becomes much less appealing. It could be, for example, that, well, legal rules only have moral force if they are produced by a just democratic process and that the contents of the laws are not particularly morally egregious, right? So maybe most laws in the United States, maybe, would then, if, if that's the case, uh, have moral force. You would be morally obligated to obey them, right? We can still allow for, for that, for there to be moral force behind certain legal systems, um, what, without committing ourselves to some you know, big underlying connection between law in, in itself and morality. You know, the discussion is premised on the idea that there is a domain of moral normativity and legal normativity, and yeah. are they equal or are they different? Yeah. And so one of the things, for example, that Scott Hershowitz does is to suggest that that there isn't something which is dis- – there is no distinctively legal normativity. There's not like, you know, checkers yeah. normativity and chess normativity and legal normativity yeah. and moral normativity. There just is normativity, right? And yeah. and, and he uses this example of a, of a beach house which has rules. Like, you know, it's got like traditional rules about like wearing – choose inside the house. He does, I don't think he uses right. that one, but other ones. And then also there's a sign that says, you know, leave your cares at the door or something like that, which is also kind of an instruction about how to, how to use the house. And, and right. he says, when we approach that and we approach those rules, we don't approach them. We don't like ask ourselves, what are, what are, what is our, uh, like, what is our beach house morality or what, what is our yeah. beach house normative inclination? Yeah. Like it's continuous with all of our, you know, it's, it's more of an all things considered kind of judgment. So, so one question is like, do you even accept that characterization about like whether law and morality are, um, uh, gi- you know, given that they're separate systems, are they connected or are they disconnected? Um, yeah. I say given that, the, you know what I mean by separate systems. I mean, mm-hmm. given that they, that they are products of different kinds of reasoning and they provide different kinds of reasons, are they nonetheless connected or are they, or are they disconnected? And then the second is, uh, the, the second premise here is, like I said, that there e- even is something which is moral normativity. You know what? Yeah. Um, that that is kind of separate from other kinds of social constructions. You know that it, we're just yeah. giving it. We're just giving a name to something, which is like maybe just nothing more than just how I think about stuff. Like whether I yeah. think stuff is right or not, and and that comes from all kinds of sources, um, including perhaps like genetic. I mean, perhaps there's some evolutionary yep. basis for certain kind. You know, people study trolley problems and trying to figure out whether there is some. But even if it's evolutionary, it doesn't mean it's not. Uh, that 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 it's a that it's a universal phenomenon, right? I mean, maybe a universal human one. But anyway, I, a lot of stuff on the table, and I, I guess I want to know. Yeah, do you even accept this idea of moral yeah, normativity? So there's yeah. so there's two things there at least. One thing is Scott Hershowitz, 
And the other thing is moral skepticism. Okay, yeah. so let's take uh, one, one at a time. Uh, so starting with the, the Hershevitz, it might be true, I think it might be true that as a psychological fact, when we are considering what we're going to do, most of the time we don't think, we don't have occurrent thoughts, you know, live thoughts that pop up into our mind um, along the lines of, well, what kind of rule is this? Is this a moral rule, really, or is it a rule of a beach house? Or, right? It might be that, just as a psychological fact, we don't think in that way most of the time. But, but I think that there really are different uh, varieties of normativity, and I think that we do think about them in this way some of the time. I mean, think about if you were playing a game, or forget the game, if you were in the beach house, right? Um, and, and it suddenly became very important whether you were going to take your shoes off or not because you wear special orthotics, and uh, if you were to take them off and walk around in the house for a little while, um, your feet would hurt significantly, right? Um, you might think, well, actually, you know what? That's just a rule of the house. It's just made for convenience so that they don't have to vacuum quite as frequently. Um, and so you'd say, so therefore, I can disregard that rule and it can be, it can be as it were, overruled by these other considerations. Um, we do often parse out the different types of rules and consider, what kind of rule is this? So, so that's, what I, that's the first immediate thing I want to say about Hershevitz. And then there's this other question about moral skepticism. That is, the thought is, well, maybe there just aren't. Um, objective moral principles that are mind independent that are out there. Maybe there's no such thing, and maybe all there is, if there's anything at all, is uh, in the moral domain, is just our, you know, sentiments. Agreement and acceptance, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so just about that. So I think that although that's a very popular position uh, in the world, and it's a very popular position, I'll tell you, uh, in <laughs> Introduction to Moral Philosophy students at the college level. Um, that is a very popular position. There are some serious problems with it. Uh, I'll just admit that I'm a moral realist. I think there really are moral facts. I think, I think the fact that innocent people should not be beheaded is not just a fact about our agreement. I think that that's really true. And I think it would be true even if uh, no one agreed on it. Oh, okay, just a second. Just I don't I don't want to divert too much into this because it's not it's not the topic of your paper. But what does it mean really to be true? What does that mean? It's really true. Mm. Uh, just like you might be skeptical of you know moral claims, you might say, look, none of these none of these claims are accurate. Um, you might be skeptical of just truth altogether. Is that what you're getting onto? When you say it, it really is true that it's wrong to behead an innocent person. Yes. Is that, is, that doing any more, is that doing anything more than just saying it just plain is wrong to behead uh, an innocent oh. person? I mean, so what, what does it mean? What does really add there? It seems to be a claim about reality, that there is this, yes. that there is this moral reality. And yes. I'm wondering, other than in a religious sense, which of course I, that would end the conversation, is, there, is yeah. there more to it than that? Well, yeah. I mean, even if you're not religious, um, You'll, you'll likely admit that there are just some things that are the case whether we know them or not, right? The sun is 93 million miles away from the earth, and it's been approximately that far from the earth the whole time before there were any people around when, you know, there wasn't a lot of oxygen in the earth's atmosphere uh, quite a long time ago. And it was the case, and it would have been the case that the sun was 93 million miles away from the earth, even if, you know, we had never evolved, right? 
So that's just a fact. It's out there. And um, it's up to us to figure out those facts. And if we, if someone reports the facts wrong, they say that the earth is much, much closer to the sun, well, then they're wrong. And even if all of their neighbors think uh, that the earth is much closer to the sun, well, then they're all wrong. You might think that moral facts are like that, even if you're not religious. You might think that, look, it's just true. Just like it's true that the sun is 93 million miles from the earth, it's just true that beheading uh, you know, conscious, um, rational agents um, for no reason just is wrong. Well, but it's, I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't say, you might say that indeed it is true and a true description of reality that the sun is one astronomical unit away from the earth. Yeah. But it would you switch be, to astronomical units. Did I get the distance <laughs> to the sun wrong? I, that would be bad. I, I don't have it. You know, even though I'm a space geek, I don't have it in my head. So I picked the safest way of saying it, which of course <laughs> yeah. is like yeah. in yeah, a way, but it's which is definitely circular. one astronomical unit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I get the circularity of it, which is like ironic. And well, we'll I, I won't continue to explain the joke, but, um, uh, but, <laughs> um, but it would be a weird thing to say that it is right and not wrong that the sun is one astronomical unit away, right? I mean, so, so it, is, it, it is true that it is that far away, and, and that, is a, that is a statement about how things really are, meaning that um, yep. if you deny it, you, there are all kinds of things that fall apart from there, right? I mean, there are all kinds of descriptions of reality that you otherwise accept. In other words, your acceptance of a lot of things about reality depends also on accepting this fact about reality. Yep. Whereas it would be a wrong thing to it seems to me an odd thing to say that it is right and proper yeah. that the sun is one astronomical unit away. Like, uh, you know, it, so so it is, you know, this the is, fact that someone did murder somebody, right, yep. is is correct. That person actually did murder that person. But uh, it seems to me a different thing to say that it was wrong for that person to murder someone else. Oh, yeah, it is definitely a different thing. And you're definitely and you're right that that is bizarre to say that it's correct or appropriate. I mean, it certainly seems bizarre on the sort of uh, contemporary scientific worldview to say that it's proper or appropriate that the Earth is 93 million miles from the sun, right? No, that's just how far it is. That's just how it turned out. And there's no fact one way or the other about whether that distance is the you know, right distance or the wrong distance. So um, then, then the trick is, this is, this is the puzzle for moral realists like myself, um, the puzzle is to say, how could it be if the world is just the world that science tells us is out there? You know, it's just a bunch of planets orbiting suns. It's just a bunch of atoms moving around. If that's the way the world is, how could it be that sometimes things are, you know, some ways of, that, that the world is arranged are right and some ways are, are not right? Uh, that's a that's a you know very famous and significant puzzle. How do you fit normativity into the scientific worldview? I don't I I, I don't know if this will be a huge disappointment, but I don't think I can answer that question. Right. <laughs> well, well let's, so let's bracket if we could. Well, I, um, I, I think this I think this is a bridge because I, so I'm going to lay my cards on the table if you don't yeah. mind, um, yeah. and 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 maybe this will will get somewhere because because I actually don't think that those are at all the same. And I'm not a, a moral realist. Rather, I think that when we talk about moral rules, it's a description for another system of thinking about cooperation that we have. Mm. It, in other yeah. words, you know, I've got this view that yep. um, that for every instance of cooperation, right, yeah. tied to that, joined to that, inseparable from that, are these kinds of conditions on cooperation, which are never fully stated and are continuing, are mm. dynamic, right? And yeah, and, and those 
and so to, to kind of violate one of those conditions is to defect from the cooperation. And a person's attitude toward defecting from cooperation, right, determines yeah. whether, the, whether those conditions or, or rules have any kind of normative force. And so what we conceive of as morality is just a way of describing what we, the way we perceive the conditions of cooperation in society broadly, whatever society yeah. you're looking at. And so, for example, yeah. the beach house, right? Is it wrong to take off my shoes in the beach house? Well, I have to think about, like, what is my relationship with the owner of the beach house? What is this group that I belong to? Yeah. What, is it, what does it mean to violate that rule, right? It, and, and often, I think in that case, you think, well, I wear these special orthotics. This person wouldn't care. I know why they're making the rules, right? And so this a total, like, anti-Razian kind of view. Like they're not an authority yeah. in the sense that I'm just not even going to consider my own views and just let their own reasons replace mine. I might try to yeah. think again about what their reasons are. And I have to think about my participation in this whole thing. You know, looked at that way, it's not really a puzzle at all, is it? That that we may have kind of competing views about what to do in any situation? Because what we're really doing when we are trying to weigh, say, morality against law or yeah. a moral rule against a, a different kind of rule is that we're just we're kind of caught between different worlds, almost literally Mm -hmm. caught caught between different instances of cooperation. On the one hand, I owe obligations to my family. On the other hand, I owe obligations to this beach house owner. On the other hand, I have a a general obligation that I can think of as Kantian that I owe to the whole world that I think people should live by all the time because if we didn't, society would fall apart. And so I'm being pulled around not by different, um, not by, um, being wrong about any particular moral rule, but by the fact that I'm a member of different kinds of groups that are defined by different kinds of conditions of cooperation. Yeah. Yeah. You could have that sort of view. I have a lot, I have a lot to say about it. So let me just try to pick something central. Well, let's just, uh, let's just go for the low hanging fruit and go back to the Nazis. The Nazis are usually the low hanging fruit, I have to say. I know there's so, and it, it, there's something embarrassing about using the example but it is a historical example in you know general jurisprudence so yeah. we'll and, go with it yeah and and i have you can to say blame before me. everyone does so blame me that's fine well no no yeah. i mean but but when at at the at a formative point of these debates of uh, you know modern positivism and modern yeah. kind of moral theory you know right. the heart fuller debates like this was an urgent question oh sure because yeah. people were trying to con- come to terms with the fact that how did law allow this to happen so this yeah. was a very emotionally laden yes in the late question. 40s and early 50s this is very much on people's yeah. minds for sure yeah. okay right <laughs> that's right yeah and we could swap in isis if we like let's say that you are you know a, a you know a low a low ranking member of the nazi social order um and as you say, you've got you're you're part of all sorts of different clubs, right? And each club has its own uh, set of rules, right? But what if in your case, almost all the clubs are pointing in the same direction, right? You're a member of the Nazi Party, kind of for whatever reason. We don't have to say that you're a true believer, um, but for whatever reason, you're a member of the Nazi Party and you live in this civilization. Um, but then also, you're at someone's beach house. Uh, and all that sort, all those. Th- but what if, what if all of those communities point in the direction, right? If those just consist of what what the folks in those communities think, what if all of those communities point in the direction of, you know, you know, putting people on cattle cars and sending them off to the to the gas chambers? Well, but I, I don't think that they do. I mean, well, they might for somebody. They might for somebody. They they, they wouldn't for me, right? Because the. Uh, my, my judgment about so I would judge that defection from the 
from the group that that is conjoined with the Nazi law, right? Uh, yep. with, with the Nazi establishment is morally required. But what that means, right, is that I have a separate conception of my participation in a broader group, humanity. I have a broader yeah. conception of my rules, right, that I think yeah. take priority. And what I'm not claiming is that these rules are are kind of written in the stars or can be deduced from axioms about human beings. Like I totally, you know, I totally accept the fact that that other people could see these things differently. Yeah. But I feel so strongly about it that I'm willing not just to die, but probably right. to kill other people, right, in order to right. stop the genocide right. from happening, right? So, right. so the the fact that I don't see it as 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 universal, in the sense that it's uh, you know uh, can can be deduced from axioms which are definitely true in some sense, right, mm-hmm. doesn't diminish my strength of feeling about defection from that cooperation. So you're as you Christian, would you say that you're as based on what you've been describing, that you're as positivist about morality as you are about law. Yeah. Uh, but you're not at all positivist about astrophysics. Because uh, those so aren't interesting just social you say that. facts, right? Well, I don't – have you seen this um, uh, TED Talk by Anil Seth? No. Uh, he's a, a cognitive scientist over, over in England. Uh, I'll link it up in the show notes. Uh, and just the title is provocative. I don't have it in front of me. Like um, how does he say it? Um, like like reality is itself a hallucination, something like that. I, I don't remember the title exactly, mm. right? But it's this idea that everything that we know is going on in our heads, right? That, <laughs> sure. Everything is a translation, right? You know, it, it's not like you're perceiving the movie of reality itself. Like everything is a translation of sensory inputs into a picture of the outside world. And in that sense is, is its own kind of hallucination. All right. So, so we have to... Because we have arrived at that point in every philosophical conversation is when this we're the about to recapitulate point? the entirety of the critique of pure reason, yeah. uh, we have to bracket something here. Right. Um, so let's bracket uh, the the moral realism versus not question, if we could, <laughs> and if, get if back you can, to if you can, yeah, if you can, can we and get that? back to well, the, so so I I take to be a project of of Jeff's paper that that we want to we. You're trying to make the world safe for a legal normativity that is not co-equal with moral normativity. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And so, and so, I want to bracket um, the the question whether, in the end, for some people, it might not turn out. Yeah, the actually they agree with Stephen Perry's assertion uh, because they think morality and law are both purely positivist projects. Right. Mm, um, yeah. That would be another way to sort of deal with what I could call the Stephen Perry problem, mm-hmm. uh, which is that you've said this thing, which sounds a little goofy. <laughs> Legal normativity is moral normativity uh, from a certain point of view. It seems goofy. Um, you're trying to ungoof it. Um, I take it by by saying, yeah, that that's not a good equation. Right. Because legal normativity isn't of the same sort of thing as moral normativity, at least not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and part of, you know, the, the most simple argument for that is not my argument, but is the traditional legal positivist argument that's already been mentioned, which is, look, Nazi law is law. So it can't be that legal normativity is moral normativity. My project in the paper is to lay out a sense in which law might be normative where that's a feature of law that really does constrain our theories of law, right? The theories of law are the things that tell us what law is. So law is going to have this quality, normativity, and that, that fact about law is going to rule out some theories of law, but it's not going to rule out all of the 
you know, positivist theories of law. It's going to leave room for a theory like HLA Hart's view. Right? HLA Hart it, uh, thinks that you know, legal rules um, ultimately come from human practices. They come from a certain attitude that legal officials take. He calls that attitude the internal point of view, but that doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> they, they have a certain attitude, and then uh, people in general behave in certain ways, and that those are the ingredients you need to get a legal system, and that's it. And just to, to make it super clear, because it's very intuitive, I think, this understanding, right? That uh, yeah. if you ask, like, why is this the law? You say, well, because there's a statute, right? And you say, mm-hmm. well, why is that statute the law? You say, well, because there's this uh, state constitution or there's this federal or because there's this other law, which says and then ultimately you come back to, well, the Constitution gives this institution the power to do it. They, it went through this institution in this way, therefore, blah, blah, blah. And you say, well, why is that the law? And ultimately you're like, well, why did they apply the Constitution? Why does it supply the rule of decision here? And ultimately you get to the fact, well, people just do that. That's just what that's just what people do. And Hart has this explanation for that, right? This ultimate rule of recognition would suggest that, well, there is a, a social rule which arises from that practice, but not just the practice itself, a certain attitude toward that practice. And, and that's what yeah. you were just describing, Jeff. Sorry to break in. No, but, no, that's, yeah. a, that's a very helpful interjection. Yeah, that's right. So um, there is, Hart thinks, and he may have stolen this idea from a German uh, you know, legal philosopher, Hans Kelsen, but that's not here nor there. He thinks that there is um, this this er legal rule called the rule of recognition. It's the one that sets out the conditions that all the other rules have to meet to have legal status, right? And so maybe that rule just says, you know, go check the Constitution or something like that, right? So there's there's this ultimate underlying rule, and then um, what gives that rule its status? What gives that rule its ability to set the conditions for all the other rules? is just the fact that certain people accept that rule. They take a certain attitude towards it. Um, and also that they behave broadly in accordance with it. That's the, it. That's all and, the adi- and the attitude is, uh, I take it, that this thing is a reason. It provides the, uh, the reason to do yeah. it. Um, yeah, it, that's it, my view. It's, sort yeah. of the, I mean, it's a contentious claim. I mean, it's actually contentious what exactly this attitude is. Right. What is the nature of this attitude that gives rise t- to social rules? And on my reading of heart, it's ba- it's basically what you said. It's that um, it's you you take this pattern of behavior as a standard and use it to evaluate instances of behavior, or you take it as a reason to behave in one way or not another way. And, and he's there contrasting himself with with Holmes, but you could also contrast him with with others here. Right. That. That when, for example, when you see a stoplight and the stoplight is red, and I think you quote this part in your, in your paper, Jeff. Uh, yeah. That that people don't just look at that stoplight and then do a probability calculation to say, well, mm-hmm. what's the likelihood that that I'll actually be hit by other cars? What is the likelihood mm-hmm. I'll be stopped by a cop? And and I take all that together and then I say, in other words, the the red light is not just one input among many in a decision about yep. whether to blow through the intersection. Rather, it is a signal to stop. He uses the word signal, and you would translate yeah. it into more kind of modern philosophical parlance as it provides a reason. To stop and, and it's generative one. It, it it is it's sort of generating. It's like an unmoved mover, right? It's it's generating the reason itself as the reason, right? That is uh, that yeah. that is the quality it has for is the it, ultimate uh, rule of recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah well, it's going to have to do that if it's going to turn out that law gives reasons. Then they're going to have to come from somewhere. And if on this view, where they come from is some attitude, then the attitude of taking there to be reasons is somehow 
going to have to make it that there really are reasons. It's going to have to work that way, broadly speaking. Um, yeah, and that's right. The attitude is um, you, th you think of the pattern of stopping at red lights not as just a thing that happens, but as um, a way that you ought to behave, right? You, you, you think of the, of the light as, you know, it's being read as a reason to stop. Now, what would be a, a re, what's your sense, Jeff, of why in the literature people think that that isn't the right way to approach this matter of of either Hart's discussion of what he's doing or your sense of what you're doing? Like, because when I read that, when I read your account and, and the sense of like, oh, yes, this is generative. It's sort of a self-generating reason. Yeah. Um, that's that's what the attitude is. Yeah. Um, it seems like, yeah, of course, that's what it is. Uh, I'm surprised to hear anyone would think problem. it was anything else. Yeah. Uh, so Yeah, that's right. I think it – well, I've actually uh, lost sense of who is speaking and who is interjecting, but whoever just did the interjection and said that it's this descriptive in, normative out thing, uh -huh. that's, that, that's, the, that's the problem, or that's one of the problems that moves people uh, away from views like mine. Because they think it's got to be normative in and normative out. If you're going to get normative out, you have to put normative in. Yeah, right? It's just like what we were talking about several minutes ago. Look, if it's just a descriptive fact that the sun and the earth are 93 million miles away from each other, that's just a descriptive fact. That's just the way things are. How could you ever get from that to a fact about, you know, what, where things ought to be? Uh, it seems like you couldn't. And so, too, it's just a descriptive fact that people take this attitude. So what? They think this. How are you ever going to get from that to a fact about what's right or wrong or correct or incorrect? Right? That's the that's the, in, in many ways, the central problem. Maybe it comes from David Hume from the third book um, of his treatise on human nature, or maybe it doesn't. But uh, that's a central problem that is moving a lot of folks in all sorts of directions uh, in this literature. We, can, we so, can say descriptively that people do call it Hume's objection. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's right. Even yeah, if they Hume's question so or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm curious, um, and this is Joe, now I'm curious if, if the, the, so, so you've arrived at this um, conclusion about yep. uh, the internal point of view in Hart, uh, Hart's theory of law and and this flavor of positivism that it uh, the internal point of view is uh, the giving of the is itself providing the reason behind the law's normativity. Um, that's like it's that's that attitude is is playing that role, right? Yeah. Um, uh, now I'm curious, and at the risk of unbracketing the the moral realism debate, let it out of I, the cage, Joe. Let yeah. it out. No, I, well, it's hard, right? But let's but get the dragon like, out on the planes and count its scales. Right? <laughs> it's right. It seems like you, Jeff, would 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 find that a little bit. I don't know what the right word is, but but it like that that would sort of be a little bit of a. Mm, not let down, but but like eh, you would think eh, that's I'm not quite crazy about that, or I'm not thrilled about that as a as a theory of law because it leaves the it it's sort of not moral realist in its orientation, is it? Ah, uh, uh, okay, okay. Well, no, good. I mean, in the sense that um, it doesn't it it's, it seems like it's not going to get you moral reasons, right? So 
if all this or if it did get if it did get immoral reasons, it would be merely by a fortuity. There, there well, nearly well, or, or by this method that we started talking about, which is triggering. Yeah, right? yeah, that exactly. Is, there would be some underlying moral law. Maybe it's just out there. It's written in, in nature or God laid it down and it just said, you know, if some folks get together and they take the internal point of view, then uh, then you've got to morally follow the, the, the laws that they produce. Um, so that would be one way to get moral reasons on a story like this, on a story like Hart's. Um, but he, Hart, I claim, Hart probably doesn't think about it that way. And I don't think we should think about it that way. I, that is, I don't think that the kinds of reasons, as it were, that you get out, that, that are produced by legal practice, the kinds of reasons to behave one way or another, um, are not moral reasons. If they're reasons at all, they're just the kinds of reasons that we find in games or fashion or the rules of clubs um, and that sort of thing. That's, and that's why I have to deny um, what we were earlier calling the Stephen Perry view of legal normativity, the view on which you know, legal normativity is moral normativity. I deny that um, partly because there's, there's really good reasons to deny it separate, independently, <laughs> but also because it'll allow, it'll allow this heart-style positivist story to work. Right? If the kind of reasons that you get out are just the kinds of reasons that you, that, that you have in games, then, oh, well, those kinds of reasons are just the kinds that are generated by attitudes. Now, uh, Christian, I think you and Jeff agree on this, right? right. That, if, that, that um, there is not a great discontinuity between uh, the, the ought status of rules in games and the ought status of rules in legal systems. Because in from from what I take in your paper, games are legal systems. They're, yeah, they're instantiations a, of cooperation. If you read nothing else in my paper, you should read people. the section on monopoly. Um, yeah, it, because I mean the and, and it's like critically practically important, right? That that because the the this attitude that we're talking about, you're taking, is going to drive yeah. the interpretation of what happens in the interstices of law. Like all laws are ultimately going to have ambiguities. There are going to be spaces between. There's going to be interpretive room. There may be construction zones, if you want to use Larry Solom's term. And like, how do you, how do you fill that stuff? I think it all goes back to those, to those attitudes, which I think are constantly, I think Hart presents maybe too static a picture of things. I think they're very dynamic, right? Mm. And, and what does it mean to say that the constitution controls if we want to take the, the, mm. the uh, ultimate rule of recognition in the United States? Well, embedded in that a lot of different ideas which will drive interpretation downstream right and and so you know w- with the game playing example like what you know is it okay should i now collect two hundred dollars when i pass go if i'm playing monopoly well i mean the, the rule says collect two hundred dollars when i pass go at least that's those are the english words there but how we apply that rule in the context of our cooperation depends on our attitude toward rules right our attitude toward the rule book which is something which is not itself in the rule book Right. right. So, yeah. So I'm very much a Hardian on this, but I think what's driving that attitude is my attitude toward the cooperation, my, my kind of modeling of other people's attitudes and accepting those or not, and w- willing to live with disagreement or not. You know, that the fact that we are cooperating says something about that. And I don't want to go too much farther into it, but I do think we agree uh, on this point. Um, yeah. I mean, there is a further. So I do think uh, that there's a lot of agreement. There is this further question. So let's say you accepted that. Fundamentally, the nature of legal normativity is the same as the kind of 
normativity you find in Monopoly. Right? Let's say you accepted that. Well, there's well, still well, a further in, in an instance of playing Monopoly. There's yeah, a, there's good. a difference, right? Good, I mean, right. yeah, good. yeah, yeah. You're distinguishing, um, as it were, the codified rules of Monopoly from an instance in which it's played, where the rules of that that Monopoly game, that one game played on that one day, might and will, based on the attitudes of the players, diverge from the uh, you know official game. Right. Yeah. Especially since that rule about auctioning things is stupid. <laughs> I mean, let's uh, let's let's make sure yeah. we don't lose. This sight is of the that. rule. This is the rule. Right. This <laughs> no one plays with that rule. Th- yeah. This is the rule that if someone lands on an unowned unowned property, chooses not to purchase it, then um, there's immediately an auction, and any other player can buy it. And it's a rule. The thought is, um, even though it says that in the rule book. If you if if you folks are not playing by that by those rules, then that's not a rule of the game of Monopoly that you're playing that day. That's not a rule of the game that you're playing, right? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's right. And, and and you know, in your your attitude toward that sentence in the in the rule book, uh, I think it's kind of parasitic on your attitude toward your cooperation. Like, so your cooperation may be such that you think what really matters here is that we're having fun. And so what, yeah. what really matters, the ultimate rule here is about kind of picking out other people's conceptions of which rules will follow and which we won't and their attitudes towards house rules and other things. Or, or maybe it's just that, like, I'm, I feel really privileged to be here at all and, uh, or, or, you know, we, we rotate whose house we do this at and I want this to keep continuing. And so whatever the person whose house we're at, whatever they think, you know, goes, all kinds of different yeah. reasons you might have for, for playing the game. Uh, and yep. for wanting it to come to a, an amicable conclusion, or maybe you really care about winning. I mean, so, you know, what the, yep. it's, it's like, you know, what if the United States Constitution were, were put in a, in a glass box and transported somewhere else 10,000 years into the future? Like, yep. it, it would just mean different things if that new civilization adopted it as their rule, right? right. And they adopted an attitude of this document controls. Uh, would it be the same thing? Well, I think the attitude they would adopt is actually more complicated than the yeah. Constitution controls. I'm sorry, I derailed this though because Jeff was going to talk about a difference. Like we had, uh, we had identified. So are you derailing my derailment? Yeah, I'm derailing your derailment of my derailment, and, oh boy. and so he he was going to point to a difference between the two of you. I think. Yeah, well, or a potential difference. Or the, the, what I was going to say was just that even if we agree that law and monopoly fundamentally are normative in the same sense. There's still a further question about, okay, well, what sense exactly is that? You might think that, well, monopoly has moral normative force and it triggers that, right? You, in some way, agree to play. Uh, There's a standing moral rule in the background laid down by God or or justice itself that says, if you agree to do something, then you've got to do it, right? So you agree to play by the rules, maybe tacitly in, in most cases. And so therefore... The sense in which you, I don't know, uh, you know, ought to pick up a certain amount of money when you land, you know, on a certain place um, is just the moral sense. And so you might say, yeah, sure, law is normative in just the sense that games are. They all have moral moral normative force. Um, So that's not my view. But um, it it just shows that merely taking these two types of practices to have similar kinds of normativity doesn't show precisely which type of normativity that is. The question I had in mind was, I wonder whether Christian thinks that way about games, whether they are, whether they have moral force. Well, again, I mean, this, this brings us back to what Joe wanted to bracket because, Mm. you know, what is moral force? So so for example, you could, (laughs) I think these systems of cooperation, these instances of cooperation exist on a continuum. There's just a spectrum of these that goes from 
what you might think of as a as a silly instance of games or uh, yep. to to the you know formal municipal law of the United States. Um, but there's all kinds of stuff in between, and even a silly instance of a game is you know you take more money than you should because someone's not looking, and, and a lot of people would say, hey, that's immoral. That could end a friendship. That could do all you know. There there are there are real reasons not to do that 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 are serious. But so, too, you could think of a system – suppose we're in a country and there is a municipal law in that country, which is uh, as formal as the law in the United States um, and maybe carried out – you know, maybe enforced ethically and, and often. Um, but there's a very strong mafia system there, and I'm a member of it. I'm a member of that mafia system, and, uh, and, and there are serious rules within the mafia system which contradict the rules of the, the municipal laws of, of the state. And uh, – I don't think there is a natural priority that I would give one of those, right? I think the the mafia rules may have a a, a stronger normative hold on me. For all kind, you know, I take an attitude toward the mafia rules, and I do it for all kinds of complicated reasons. I take an attitude toward the municipal laws for all kinds of complicated reasons, and and which of those kinds of wins out depends on my attitude ultimately towards those groups, towards those instances of cooperation, and those attitudes are complicated but ultimately cognitive. So let me ask a question about what you've just described. So alongside the municipal laws and alongside the 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 rules of this mafia system that you posited, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say there's also a um a church uh and it has a traditional set of what what I think just people in common parlance would would recognize and refer to as a a set of moral rules, right? It's got right. a set of commandments or a catechism or a whatever that are its you know its running list of here are the things you're supposed to do and here are the things you're not supposed to do. My guess, Christian, is that you this goes back to the moral realism versus moral positivism point. You you would treat that you, you would describe that human enterprise of people being in that church, following those rules or not following those rules, et cetera, right, in just the same way as the municipal law and as the mafia rules, right? Right. I mean, it's expressed differently. They may not be written down as statutes. The institutions may be different or... So the semantic difference between... Same with the family. In our culture, you would, I take it, describe there being a semantic difference, a usage difference in words like games, laws moralities but when you're talking about the the human practice of those three different things right how humans do it which mm-hmm. is model cooperation conceptually in the ways you describe in your paper right, right. they're all three the same thing well, conceptually they're all the same uh, and they describe similar kinds of cognitive processes i think okay uh, but it is an empirical reality that that some have priority over some claim priority over others Shapiro uses this to distinguish, say, homeowners association laws from municipal laws, right? And, yeah. and to, to say that one is not law and one is law. I think that's, a, you know, I think he's observed a, a, something which is real, a real distinction. I'm not sure that saying one is law and one is not is is that helpful. But which one we choose to follow, which one we think is more important, which one we think is supreme – all of this is kind of like empirical and contextual. And individuals are making, on your view, individuals are making these choices dynamically in real time all the time. However much they pull it into their consciousness in a particular specific way, um, they're, they're either in action or by reasoning followed by action, by, by highly conscious interrogative right. reasoning followed they, by action. They are making choices about which to prioritize in the case where they conflict. And they're thinking about which things are obligatory in different senses, right? So I kind of agree, I, I think with, and I haven't read his new book yet, Brian, Brian Tamanaha has you know, this theory that, that law just is what a particular people conventionally call law. 
right? So that word may be used for some systems and not other systems. The reason I was trying to pull this out is because I don't think you made this claim in the paper that 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 moral systems are of rules are like legal systems of rules are like game systems of rules. You 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 equated the latter two, legal and game, but not I think moral and legal and I game. Certainly Maybe I missed to. it. I certainly intended to because I actually think that um that what a system like a, what an instance of cooperation will do to try to prevent defection is to suggest that its rules are really just a restatement of other rules that people already find important. Right. So, so, <laughs> sure. so think of a family which says like something like, you know, no drugs in the house. Right. Like one reason you may point to that rule is, hey, this is just a law of the state. Right. So you're trying to say a reason to follow our rule is because if you don't, you could get arrested, even though, even if the potential for arrest is remote. Right. But similarly, a legal system will try to, you know, a, a, a traditional municipal legal system will try to say, well, our laws are nothing more than a restatement of traditional family values. Mm. Right now, well, why do you do that? Right, you're trying to gather to yourself all of the existing force of obligation that people already feel to that other system, and and you're trying to like, hopefully, having it bleed over into your other rules that people might not otherwise feel the same about. That I say that in the paper, so I think I do say some of that. But okay. you know, like we said, it's a long paper, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's interesting because it once you once you look at the internal point of view. As the source of reason, once you look at it as generative in this way um, that Jeff does and that you've been describing, um, and again, thinking that this is a point of agreement. If they're the same. I don't want to ascribe these views to Jeff. I want to hear from Jeff right, all but, the reasons but, I'm wrong but I, about this. Yeah. This is what I perceived as agreement between yeah. you. Um, that I think what's, one thing that's interesting, once you take that – once you look at the internal point of view in that way, is you, you can start to – Think about things like the thing you just did, which was to say, um, you know, how to how do humans try to advantage the internal point of view they want someone to have relative to one they think that person already has? Right. Right. Um, they, in other words, it's a thing about which people start to strategize and, yeah. and start to behave because yeah, it's another tool. This is nothing more than an elaboration of the natural law. Right, that mean that as a claim, yeah, it's that's a claim, what we could yeah, make, yeah. right? Um, but see, in the paper, I claim that like a lot of non-human animals have legal systems, right? Wherever there is a cooperative enterprise, and we're finding more and more there are cooperative enterprises among lots of different kinds of critters, and not just uh, chimpanzees, for example. Right, right. There is this kind of inter-individual uh, modeling of minds uh, in order to foster the cooperation. So fascinating. Mm. So Jeff, we're very far afield from your project, though. Well, we're not that far afield from it. Um, my my most pressing thought is about animals and whether they can have mm. legal systems. I have two quick thoughts about that. One of them is just that, look, like any other word, we can choose to use the word law as we like. Um, but we might think that the differences, there are certain features that paradigm human legal systems have that earn the term law um, and that the most productive thing to do with the word law is to reserve it for those. Uh, and so famously, you know, you know, Hart thinks and lots of folks think that law uh, is a system of structured rules. They have a hierarchy. There are some rules that are included because there are other rules that talk about those those you know lower order rules right so 
the rules that are listed in the Constitution, right? Those don't say, you know, how, to, how fast to drive on the road. No, no, those rules are rules about how to make the rules about how fast to drive on the road. And so you have this hierarchical structured feature of legal rules. And you might think that that's a, you know, necessary or nearly necessary characteristic for a system of rules to have to earn the title law. If there aren't higher order and lower order laws, then we shouldn't call it a legal system. Uh, because, you know, one of the, well, then you're going to have to have a view about uh, what the purpose of a legal system is and that it can only achieve that purpose if it has this hierarchical uh, structure. So certainly, well, would we, I don't know, I'm not a biologist um, or a zoologist. There aren't any animal systems of cooperation that involve that kind of structure. Uh, is that correct? Uh, I, well, it depends on what you what you mean by it. I mean, first, it's a, actually a really interesting question because I, I every time I read Hart, I'm of two minds about it because I, I will describe his theory as saying that law basically is a union of primary and secondary rules or a legal system is. And, and he does kind of yeah. say that, but he but he oh, also it's, say, it's, I think that's like that's like a, the name of a chapter and probably the <laughs> first and fifth sentence in half the chapters. Yeah, so he thinks that. It yeah. is, but he but he also doesn't deny the status of law to uh, rules created to, to, to systems that only have primary rules, even though he conceives that they may only be fleeting or they may fall apart because they don't have rules of succession, et cetera. That said, um, in systems of animals, you could imagine if you take my view that, that you're following rules and accepting of what is behind certain kinds of threats is parasitic on, or at least is tied to in a very uh, tight way, your attitude toward the cooperation then, you know, critters which do cooperate in a group and which do understand rules, um, they seem to have that. Like there is an ultimate rule of recognition. It's the, it's the attitude toward defection that one takes, right? And um, I, I don't, I don't want to go into it too yeah. much more. I haven't written too much about it. And there than, are even – we'd have to ask a primatologist, I suppose. But, I'm, but I'm, my guess is there are – Maybe not there, just a primatologist. Th- there, yeah. are thing, there are things we'd have that, to ask. We'd have to ask the apes themselves. They're really <laughs> the only ones that could settle this. The question is, when we ask them, if I'm not we even could, sure it's just apes, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to um, be chauvinistic towards other other <laughs> types of primates, but right. So we'd have to ask them this: um, Do you do you conceptualize your own behavior as as fitting various patterns of behavior that that other agents uh, can also exhibit? And do you regard some forms of behavior as in some sense or other appropriate or inappropriate based on whether those, those kinds of behavior fit with the pattern? So we'd have to ask them that. And if, and if the, the, the relevant you know, primate said, yeah, yeah, that's the way we think about it, then I would say, welcome to the club. Um, <laughs> you've, got, you've got probably the crucial ingredient for a legal system. You know, I think that the real interesting question in this area is, um, what do you need for a system of rules? And then on top of that, what do you need for a legal system? And then we can just go and, and have the, you know, zoologists or, or uh, you know, biologists figure out whether uh, various animals have got that. I have so much more to say and, and well, to look, ask you about it, but like, we either have to strap in for another eight hours. <laughs> Or we need to adjourn. <laughs> I think those are our options. Well, what what part of your theory here, Jeff, do we not get to that you you would want? Like, if you had one takeaway message for people about normativity and how yours your your theory is distinctive, is, did we hit on that? You think, or or would you want to say more? 
Well, I think we've hit on certain parts of it. I mean, one thing I'll just say as a sort of plug is that uh, the account that I lay out in this paper applies not just to law. It applies to other practices like language. And that that is a very controversial upshot of the view. Um, But if if anyone's interested, there will be lots of forthcoming work about that. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's a good reason to have you back. Uh, Yeah, I, I look forward to it. All right, man. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been really, really fun. Thank you guys for having me.